Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. Jesus made it a habit to contradict and disregard and downright mock the tradition of the elders. The Pharisees had a problem with that, didn't they? It didn't matter if, to them if Jesus' critiques or their corrections were right or wrong. All they knew was that when he said everything they taught was wrong, it made them look bad. Right? So they had two options. They could either listen to Jesus and repent and turn from everything they had believed, or they could silence Jesus and continue in their unrighteous tradition. Well, which one would they do? Well, by 12.16, Matthew 12.16, the choice had been made and the Galilean Pharisees began conspiring together as how they might destroy Jesus. In their conspiring, they began to make allies. That helps you when you're conspiring. Get people on your side. And first we see them go to other like-minded people who have more clout than they do. That's the first thing they did. Uh, That's what happened in Matthew chapter 15 when this Jerusalem delegation of Pharisees and scribes came down to Galilee to investigate Jesus' orthodoxy. The Galilean Pharisees had gone up, reported that they thought there were problems and dangerous things that Jesus was teaching that was against the tradition, and the Jerusalem delegation came down. And according to their standard, he failed. And he didn't just fail, he failed hard. Uh, In in order to fail as hard as he failed, you'd have to fail on purpose, really, wouldn't you? Uh, And that's what we see. He refused to even take their test because they weren't the teachers, he was. He turned the tables on them. He, uh, He, when they questioned why he disregarded their tradition, he called them out for their blatant hypocrisy. He called them a bunch of mask wearers. He cited one of their traditions and called it out for its wickedness. And when he finally answered their question, remember how he did it in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, to the crowd, hear and understand. It's not that which goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but that which proceeds out that defiles a man. So they were worried about him influencing the crowds. And they're saying, hey, you're not teaching the line with our tradition. He said, oh, okay, come here, crowds, and talk directly against their tradition right in front of them. That's Jesus. Jesus, meek and lowly, right? That's, that's Jesus. That's the Jesus of the Bible. And the disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard that statement? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, let's just say that after that encounter, the Galilean Pharisees had the help of the Jerusalem Pharisees, but now it's on to phase two. Phase one was get like-minded people that are higher up with more clout than them on their side. And the Pharisees now needed to get the help of their rivals, the Sadducees. And this is truly an odd pairing. The Pharisees were the conservatives of their day, holding to the tradition in which they had been raised and resisting all change to any tradition, anything they'd always believed or what they thought that their ancestors had always believed, even though it had gradually changed over time. And Sadducees were the progressives of their day, rejecting the tradition of the elders. And they even embraced the ideas of pagan Rome as long as they could profit from it. They were pragmatists. The Pharisees and Sadducees were an odd pairing indeed, but a necessary pairing if the Pharisees were going to destroy Jesus because the Sadducees had a much better relationship to Rome than the, Sadducees, than, than the Pharisees did. 
All the zealots who wanted to see the overthrow of Rome, they were in the Pharisees' camp. The Sadducees were fine with being under Roman rule, so the Romans liked them a lot. As long as the Sadducees had a seat at the table, they were more than willing to cooperate with Rome and all the, whatever they did. The pragmatically compromising Sadducees could rightly be labeled as sellouts. Corrupt authorities like sellouts. So Rome, they liked the Sadducees a lot. And if the Pharisees wanted Jesus executed, then the Romans would have to do it because the Jews weren't allowed to perform capital punishment. And the Pharisees knew that the Sadducees' connections to the Roman authorities would be useful in getting it done. So they swallowed hard and they cooperated with these compromised Sadducees with whom they had basically nothing in common. So when Jesus withdrew into the Galilee areas to lay low after his contentious showdown with the Pharisees in chapter 15, the Pharisees, what they were doing, they were busy getting the Sadducees on their side to go with them against Jesus. And last week we saw their interaction. Although the exchange we saw between the Pharisees and the Sadducees last week was less contentious than the one that was with the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 15, it would have been every bit as offensive, especially to the Sadducees, these rich Sadducees being rebuked by a humble carpenter, an uneducated rabbi. They come to Jesus without a term of respect and demand a sign from him, and Jesus doesn't even really try to convince them of anything. The response is more of just a dismissal. He mocks them for their inability to recognize that he's the Messiah when it's so obvious. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation for asking for any further proofs when he's provided so many. And he refuses to provide them with any sign whatsoever except an unidentified sign of the prophet Jonah, which itself was a thinly veiled warning of judgment that was going to be coming against them. So that brings us to our text for this morning. In Matthew 6, 5 through 12. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss among themselves, saying, He said that because we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith. Why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves and the five thousands and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves and the four thousands and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I don't speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not say, beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We're going to look at five points this morning. We're going to see the uh, disciples' mistake, Jesus' message, the disciples' misunderstanding of that message, Jesus' modification of their understanding, and then the disciples' maturation that does take place here. So we'll begin with their mistake in verse 5. The disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. We find out from verse 5 that the disciples were not with Jesus when this interaction between the Pharisees and Sadducees took place. They weren't there. Matthew 15, 39 tells us Jesus got on the boat and landed at Magadan. And the disciples landed on the other side of the sea in 6.15. Why? What's going on? Well, because disciple-makers like Jesus, they delegate responsibilities. 
Jesus often gave the disciples tasks to do. In John 4, 7 and 8, when Jesus had his famous encounter with a woman of Samaria, where were the, where were the disciples? They were away in the city buying food. In Luke 10, Jesus sent the disciples ahead of him to the cities that he planned to visit so that they could make preparations for him before he arrived. In Matthew 14, 15 through 20, in the feeding of the 5,000, he instructed the disciples to give the crowd something to eat. Jesus had the disciples bring the loaves and the fish to him, and Jesus simply broke them and blessed them and gave it to the disciples for them to hand it out and then collect up. And then the disciples themselves collected up the miraculous leftovers. We see that same sort of delegation of the feeding of the, in the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 15, 35 through 37. And in the next chapter, when those who received the temple tax got on Jesus to pay the tax, Jesus had no money and he tells Peter to go and to cast a hook and take the fish, the first fish that comes up, and when he has opened its mouth, that he'd find a piece of money in it and to take that and give it to them for you and for me. Could Jesus have just ha- held out his hand and caused the money to fall from the sky? Could he have done that? And could have just had it land right in his hand, couldn't he? Absolutely he could. He's the Son of God. But you know, I, I, I love this, that God delights in using weak, frail men and women and involving them in his work. Even Jesus delegated the, ca- the task of keeping up with the money to whom? To Judas. He even delegated Judas... A responsibility when he knew Judas was the one that was going to betray him. Put him to work. In order to make disciples, we have to delegate tasks to those who we want to see reach maturity, knowing full well that disciples fail. And here we see the disciples failing in verse 5. They had forgotten to bring any bread. This word for forgot, it's, it's forget, to neglect, to disregard, or to overlook. Apparently that was one of the tasks that Jesus had left them behind to do before they sailed over, before they met back up. You stay behind, I'm going on ahead, gave them some tasks. One of those things seems to have been get some bread, get some food. And they dropped the ball. Mark 8.14 tells us that they didn't have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And that's far from enough to feed 13 men one meal, isn't it? Even one meal. So they didn't do what they were supposed to do. That should encourage any of y'all here who might be like me sometimes, who forget, neglect, disregard, and overlook good, important things that you know you need to do. Am I the only one that does that sometimes? For those of you who never forget, neglect, or disregard anything, I have two things to tell you. One, yes, you do. If you're doing everything you think you're supposed to do, then you need to raise the bar a little bit. You don't understand what your responsibilities really are. Your expectations of yourself are too low. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, that word is hamartia, missing the mark. If we say that we don't miss the mark in any way, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. Yes, you do indeed forget, neglect, disregard, and overlook tasks. You're a disciple and like any disciple, you fail. A disciple's a learner. If you didn't have things to learn, you wouldn't be a disciple. You'd be a master. Of course we fail. You're not nearly as good as you think you are. I'm not either. And two, take a lesson from Jesus. 
He was patient with these forgetful, neglectful disciples who were prone to unintentionally disregarding what he told them to do and overlooking things that needed to be done. Yet Jesus called them his beloved disciples, didn't he? He still delegated jobs to them. They didn't fail and then he was, oh, I'm not going to ever involve you in anything again. I'm done with y'all. Didn't do that. He still cared enough about them to continue teaching them patiently. And so in verse 5, we see that the disciples reunited to Jesus and they don't know what happened when Jesus landed in Magadan. They don't know about this contentious encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees, but Jesus has been prayerfully stewing on it. Jesus, they're not there. Jesus has this encounter and he's mad. And he's thinking about the encounter and he's running it through. Guys, Jesus was a man like we are. But unlike we are. But he's sitting there and he's, he's thinking about it. In Mark 8, 12, it tells us that when they asked for the sign from heaven, that he sighed deeply. He showed his frustration. He's, gosh, how can you not see this? He sees the obvious hardness of their heart and he's thinking about the fact that although these two groups are as different as they can be in their worldviews, they're united in one thing, their rejection of him. He's thinking, how are both of these completely opposite groups of people and what they believe, even though it's so opposite, how are both of their worldviews so dangerous and why do they have in common that they reject me? He wants to warn the disciples of both groups. Not one group, not just the Pharisees, not just the Sadducees, of both distinct different groups. He wants to warn about both of them. And then we get his message. In verse 6, Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Notice with me two things, what Jesus doesn't do and what he does do. First, he doesn't correct every minor failure every time. Jesus makes no mention of the fact that they forgot, neglected, disregarded, or overlooked one of their responsibilities. And it's not that it didn't matter. There are character issues involved. It was irresponsible and inconsiderate and unreliable of the disciples to forget to bring bread like they were supposed to. It was very immature. But Jesus had bigger issues on his mind. He didn't pick at every little peccadillo. Brothers and sisters, don't pick at your brothers and sisters every little peccadillo sin. Don't do that. Christians major on the major and minor on the minor. If the disciples get the major things right, over time, the minor things will take care of themselves. But never fail to remember that disciple makers do warn when there's real danger. We're discipling for the good of those that we're discipling, aren't we? We care about them. So we don't want to warn them of things they do that get on our nerves or inconvenience us. But we do want to warn them of things that will destroy them. So Jesus warns them to watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. To understand this warning, you have to understand leaven. In the ancient world, the normal method of bringing about fermentation and bread making was to insert a small amount of old fermented dough that was kept back from the previous baking into a new batch of dough. If you want more information about that, ask Jessica Martinez. She can explain it to you in great detail. It is this leaven, or sourdough rather, than yeast that uh, Jesus is referring to. The introduction of the small amount of leaven makes no visible difference on the mass of dough, but the leaven spreads. So the imagery of leaven is of something proportionately small and therefore able to be thought of as apparently of minor significance. 
So much so that in the early stages, its presence in the dough is invisible. But nonetheless, over time, it totally transforms the situation in a manner that will only gradually become evident. We've seen leaven used as a, as a metaphor earlier in a positive way. Remember in Matthew thirteen thirty three, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until all was leavened. There Jesus was encouraging us of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven in his ministry and that it would spread until the whole earth was transformed by the gospel. But it's not only good things that can spread like leaven. Wicked influences and ideas can spread as well. Although the ideologies of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were different, they were both dangerous. And if the disciples adopted either of these errors in part, then there was a danger that these ideas could impact the totality of their lives. When you adopt a little error, it makes a big difference in your life. These two opposite errors are both critically dangerous. Jesus might not have mentioned the fact that they dropped the ball on the food, but this danger has awakened an urgency in Jesus. And when they're reunited, Jesus warns them. I like Mark's account there. In Mark 8.15, he says, He was giving orders. The the word there, uh, diastoleto, it means to sternly order. Jesus was, he had been sitting around after this encounter with with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's really torn up about the danger of both of these different worldviews. And when the disciples get back, he feels an urgency, and he's sternly warning them, Watch out! Beware! It's a stern... Directive. They thought they think he's upset because they ain't got no bread. It's not what he's upset about, but he is. It's an animated. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This word watch out, it means keep looking for, to pay attention to, to perceive, to behold, to discern. But and the point here is that the errors aren't necessarily obvious. It can somebody can have the error of the Pharisees or the error of the Sadducees, and you can say, Well, he's a pretty good guy. You can think that. Or you can have the error of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and not realize it. Now realize that you've got an error in your heart that's dangerous for your soul. And he says, watch out. These errors are subtle, almost invisible like leaven is. So they have to be, you have to keep looking for them. Paying attention to, perceiving, beholding, discerning, analyzing your heart, keeping your heart because out of your heart flow the issues of life. He doesn't just say watch out. He says beware. That's... He adds both these words, doesn't he? Watch out! Beware! The word beware, be cautious about. Watch out isn't good enough, so Jesus adds another word of warning. It's watch out because it's urgent that you watch out. Allowing this leaven to take root could damn your souls. But now we see that the disciples misunderstand. We've already got ahead to this a little bit, but they began to discuss among themselves saying, He said that because we didn't bring any bread. Jesus is concerned about their souls and the disciples think he's concerned about their sandwiches. Right? Jesus is thinking about something eternal and the disciples are fixated on something temporal. In their defense, they have no context for what Jesus is talking about. 
They don't know what happened while they were gone. They don't know about this new contentious encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is picking up on his experience in verses 1 through 4, and the disciples are picking up on their own experience, that they don't have any bread. So they hear leaven and they think about their own experience. We don't have any bread. I want you to realize this. Many of our failures to communicate are due to that very thing. You're thinking one direction and they're thinking a different direction. And you're thinking they're stupid. They're not stupid. They just have a different perspective than you because they've not experienced or been where you are. They need more clarification. Take some patience and instruction. That's many times. But there's more going on here because Jesus actually turns this into a rebuke. So it's not just they weren't there. So this defense can only go so far. A survey of the disciples' ministry could be called Adventures in Missing the Point. (laughs) When, When Jesus told the disciples of the coming judgment on the Pharisees, Every plant which the Heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. If the blind man guides the blind man, they'll both fall in the pit. The disciples didn't understand. Peter said, explain this parable to us. And Jesus was unpleasantly surprised by their lack of understanding. And he said, are you still without understanding? They should have gotten this by now. Because he'd already explained that the Pharisees were the sons of the evil one in the parable of the wheat and the tares. He'd already told them in the Sermon on the Mount that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. But they just couldn't seem to wrap their mind around the fact that the Pharisees and Sadducees were to be condemned. Guys, you've got got legalist people that are holding to their understanding of the law that call themselves Christians that you think are good people that are dangerous for you. They seem good. But they're filled with the leaven of the Pharisees. And you've got liberal Christians out there too that you think, oh man, they're good, they're well-meaning. And they are holding to the opposite error, the error of the Sadducees. And they are dangerous, damnably dangerous as well. And they are dangerous for you. In addition to what they should have known about the Pharisees, they should have remembered what Jesus taught them earlier about the necessities of life, shouldn't they? Remember in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 28-34, why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then and say, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things. For your heavenly Father knows you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of heaven and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. When believers live in spiritual trust and obedience, God makes provision for their physical needs. The the disciples should have known that. They should have known, hey, He can't be so tore up that we didn't bring bread. And they should have known, hey, He's saying something bad about the Pharisees who He's already told us are on the outside of the kingdom looking in. But they totally misunderstood. And Jesus did not leave them in that misunderstanding. We see a modification going on here. I used modification here because it was the only M word in the thesaurus that went with correction. So correction would have been better but then it would just been weird. You'd have three M's and four M's and a, and a C. So he corrects them. He modifies their understanding in 8 through 11. 
But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the five thousands and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves and the four thousand and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Disciple makers are aware of their disciples. Guys, that's important. Notice verse 8. Jesus aware of this. He knew what they were saying behind the scenes. He knew what was going on. He knew where their hearts were and where their minds were and what they were talking about. We need to make sure we know the state of our brothers and sisters in Christ as much as possible. We need to be connected to one another in this church. Are you your brother's keeper? Absolutely. Yes, you are. Jesus knew they had a faithless misunderstanding of his warning and that because of that they would correct the small thing, forgetting, neglecting, disregarding, and overlooking their food duties, but still being vulnerable to the error of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I want to encourage you. When you see your brother or sister in danger, there's some awkward, difficult conversations that need to be had and you need to love them enough to have the awkward and the difficult conversations. Jesus did. We have here a great example of how Christians should disciple other Christians, walking alongside of them and helping them interpret life's struggles, its perplexities, its problems, and its opportunities. He explains first the significance of the events. In verse 8, Jesus echoes the little faith phrase from 6, 30, and 31. If God clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus doesn't say here, though, I told you so. I told you back in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't say, I told you so, but I showed you so. He points them back to what they've seen with their own two eyes. Experience is a great teacher. Pointing people back to what they've walked through and God's faithfulness is great and important and necessary. Every time you encourage somebody, it doesn't mean you're doing an exegesis of a text. A lot of times it can be an exegesis of their life. In line with spiritual truth and scriptural truth, yes. But pointing them back to God's faithfulness in their life, in your shared life and experiences together. He points them back to what they've seen with their own two eyes. How, could, how in the world could they forget such a miraculous feeding? They didn't forget the feeding. They failed to understand its significance. Of course, they remembered it happened, but obviously they didn't put two plus two together. They're like the liberals today that put two plus two together and get five. Or actually three. They didn't get enough. Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, do you, why do you discuss amongst yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not... Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the five thousands and how many baskets full you picked up or the seven loaves and the four thousands and how many large baskets full you picked up? Have you ever heard someone say, Tell me and I will forget. Show me and I will remember. Involve me and I will understand. Well, Jesus told them, showed them and involved them. They still didn't get it. That's not foolproof. It's, it's better, but it's still, it's still not foolproof. People still can fail to get it. So he, he did explain the significance of the, of the event. And then he also exclaims over their inexcusable ignorance. Look in verse 8 and 11. Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith. There's an exasperation in the voice there, isn't there? And in verse 11, How is it 
Rhetorical question. How in the world do you not get this? How is it that you don't understand that I don't speak concerning bread? Jesus puts the onus where it belongs too. They didn't fail to understand because of limited information or limited intellectual ability, but they failed to understand because of limited faith. They didn't believe God enough. They had a lack of trust. Got a lot of people with a lot of theological knowledge, but they don't have a whole lot of faith, and their lives don't look like the knowledge. It looks like the amount of faith they've got. That's where our understanding problems and obedience problems originate in our lack of faith. How is it that you don't understand that I speak I didn't speak to you concerning bread? What is Jesus saying here? If I were concerned about having bread, I could simply create some myself. Ex nihilo. Let there be bread, and there was bread. And he saw the bread, and it was very good. (laughs) He could command the stones to be made bread. Couldn't he? He didn't need bread. When I fed the 5,000, I had five loaves and two fish. I fed fed 5,000 people. I had 12 baskets left over. I had seven loaves and and a few small fish. And I fed 4,000 people and had seven large baskets filled. Have you forgotten those, uh, those occasions so soon? To quote R.C. Sproul, What's wrong with you people? You people of little faith. You men of little faith. It's a recurring thing. It links back to the doubted promise of God's provision and clothing in 631, to the cowardice of the disciples when they lost sight in the storm of the reality of the power and presence of the Lord Jesus and they woke Him up terrified and Jesus says, What? You men of little faith. You think the Messiah's on the boat and God's going to kill him in a storm? We're going to be alright here. Or the doubting of Peter that caused him to sink when he's walking on the waves and he said, How is it that you doubted, Peter? The focus here is on a lack. The focus here on lack of bread belongs with this set of inappropriate responses because it also evidences a lack of confidence in God's provision and care. You don't believe right, so you don't do right. You know, that's always the case. Your actions are the fruit of your belief or your lack thereof. It's not a problem. Do better. No. That'll never work. If you don't believe rightly, you'll never do rightly. That's why people don't liberally give at Manorville Fellowship. Well, now I'm meddling. There's some of you that hardly give any money at all. Guys, I don't harp on giving all the time, but you know why you don't give? Because you don't believe God will give you back. That's it. You think you've got to hoard it up, miser it up. When 2 Corinthians 9, 8-11, when Paul is encouraging giving, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So always having all sufficiency in everything, you might have an abundance in every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread, to, bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. You say, now you're one of those wealth and prosperity preachers. No, I'm not. I'm a Bible preacher and that's what the book says. I'm not saying sow five dollars and you'll get five hundred back, but I'm saying God will take care of you. Give liberally to His work. But you don't believe enough. You believe if you give, you'll have less. When God says if you give, you'll have more. 
That's why people don't prioritize relationships within the church because they don't believe that they should be coming out from among the unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever or what agreement does the temple of God have with idols. For we are the temple of the living God just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my, my people. And since that's true, if you really believe that, therefore come out from their midst and be separate. But you hold to those friends that are unhealthy for you because you don't believe that. What you do is always a, a consequence of what you really believe. I could say, oh, you have little faith. How can you not get this? Perfectly appropriate to correct and rebuke. If someone breaks fellowship with a church because they're asked, how do you not get this? Then they've simply exposed themselves as sub-Christian. You know, we ought to be able to say to one another, how do you not understand this? Oh, you have little faith. It comes from a pretty good example giver, doesn't it? And when they go out, they went out from us, 1 John 2.19, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us so that it might be made evident that they were not of us. Sometimes people leave and it's a pruning of the tree and we've got to be okay with it. If they will not repent and be righteous, then that's the way it lies. A Christian has the humility to be refuted, to be contradicted, to be rebuked, to be corrected. And the tone of the person doing the correcting doesn't change their willingness to hear. It's not what you said, it's how you said it. Uh, that's weak and cowardly. It's an unholy response. I would have said it different. Okay, well you'd have said it different. Is it true? Is it true? So move up to it. And you'll be more holy. And if you think they were in sin, pray for them. Or show them the Bible. If not, concentrate on you. Use the Bible as a mirror and look it square in the eye and see who you are instead of trying to point it at everybody else so they can see who they are all the time. He doesn't only exclaim over their inexcusable ignorance, but he also, once again, emphasizes what really matters. But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Christ was only months from the cross. There was no time to major on minors. One day without food was of no consequence. Like most of us, a little forced fast might even have done them a little bit of good. Who knows? But worldview is critical. What you eat here, physical food, compared to the spiritual food... The, the gravity, the importance of one in comparison to the other, there's no comparison at all. The word comparison doesn't even, doesn't even blip the radar of this. The comparison is not the right word. There is no comparison. If the worldview is right, the rest will take care of itself. The powerful, leaven-like influence of truth will spread until it transforms the entire person. And on the flip side, if the worldview is wrong, the consequence will permeate the whole man. So again, we get this word of warning. But beware, be cautious about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The good news is that they did not continue in their ignorance. We see some maturation. Praise the Lord for that. He that began a good work in you, he'll perform it until the day of his appearing. 
There might be times of exasperation with yourself and with the people you're trying to disciple, but rest assured, there will be a maturation that will take place when God is truly at work. And we see it here then, verse 12, they understood. He did not say, beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They shouldn't have, had to, shouldn't have taken this long. He already said it's not that which goes into a man, but that which comes out of a man that defiles a man. And now they think he's concerned about leavenous bread. The disciples finally understood. They needed to beware of the self-righteous, so-called conservative Pharisees who were holding to their traditions, even though those traditions went against God's law. Those Pharisees dug their heels in against Jesus' call to repentance. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, they needed to beware of the progressive Sadducees who pragmatically rejected tradition and God's law in order to fit in with society at large. You have your separatists that are holding to conservative things while society's trying to change, and they're saying, no, no, I won't change, but they're self-righteous in it, digging into things that aren't even actually God's truth and saying, no, this is what I've always believed and always done, and I won't move. And you have the other side saying, no, that's not righteous. We need to be moving and changing with the times. We need to be on the right side of history. Both will make you self-righteous and think you're right about everything and the whole world wrong about everything. And you won't hear rebuke when it's brought to you. And you won't grow when you're corrected. How can you? You're right about everything. Therefore... Your worldview with all of its wrong things that won't be corrected increasingly permeates your entire being. And you start out a little wrong and you end up completely wrong, given over like the Pharisees did. They didn't start out objecting to Jesus so strongly, but by the end, they're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, completely given over, committing the unpardonable sin, attributing the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus to the work of demons, even though they know better. It can take you that far... Both groups would rise up against God Himself to hold to their version of truth. And that rebellion would spread through the whole man and to others if not stopped. Indeed, it was the spiritually contaminating influence of both the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus uses here as leaven to represent. Beware of their influence, the Lord was saying. Their way of thinking and living has no part in my kingdom of righteousness. To give a little bit of more explanation of the teaching of the Pharisees. Although Jesus had more in common with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, ultimately they too were dangerously wrong. They held the law, honored the law with their lips. They believed the prophets, but for hundreds of years rabbis had handed down their tradition of the elders that increasingly twisted the true meaning of God's Word. Just like Jesus explains in Luke 12, 1, the leaven of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. They act like they're holy when they're actually just wearing masks to look holy. Their particular form of ungodliness was characterized by religious phoniness, external purity, without internal righteousness. The legalism, formalism, and ritualism that they cherished so dearly were a cover for spiritual uncleanness and deadness. There are churches filled with people like this. They go every day and they think they're so right and so separate from everybody, but they're just modern-day Pharisees who are still trusting in their works. Their hypocrisy adversely permeated the whole religious scene in Israel. When Jesus corrected them, they only got angry because it made them look bad. They refused to consider the possibility that maybe they might be wrong. 
three texts that highlight their error throughout Matthew. There's more, but remember in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said of them of old, but I say to you, he's correcting. They've dug in their, in their tradition, but he's saying, no, no, you've always believed it. I know you've always believed it. And you think you're a bastion of righteousness, but you've always been wrong. And like that. Or when he was in, in the synagogue and there was the man there with a withered hand and they questioned Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Then they asked him so that they might accuse him. And he said, what man is there who is if he has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do it on the Sabbath. He corrects their false tradition and he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and was restored to normal like the other. He does the miracle that should have proved I'm right and you're wrong. But the Pharisees, that's exactly when they went out and conspired against him, how they might destroy him. Why? Because he's disagreeing with what they've always believed, even though there's miraculous proofs. doesn't matter how much you try to prove to somebody that's dug in to their conservative views. When their conservative views are wrong and their mommy and daddy told them so, some people just won't change. Give me that old-time religion. Give it, you know, it's good for our fathers. Guys... I'm thankful for what's handed down. But we've got to go to the Word of God. Sometimes mommy and daddy were wrong. In Matthew 15, 1-3, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? You see that? That's who they were. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. There's many modern applications. You, you talk to a guy that's KJV only, you cannot reason with the person. They will think that the Greek manuscripts can be corrected by the King James Version that was translated off of them. They'll ask you things like, Hey, uh, that, that, Mexican, that Mexican church over there. You say Spanish. No, uh, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Spanish, that Spanish church. Do they use the King James? No, they speak Spanish. And that's an English translation. They, they can't get it. And, they, and you, you reason with them. The, the King James wasn't even translated to 1611. How did people get saved before that? And they'll come up with elaborate things. They just dig their heels in. Nothing you can do about it. Hymnal songs. I need these old hymnals. I don't like these highfalutin, newfangled songs you've been singing. Oh, you mean like a mighty fortress is our God? Yeah, well, where'd that come from? Ah, the 1500s. It's not new, but it's not what they're used to. And you're wrong because you don't do what they've always done. It's the leaven of the Pharisees. And their self-righteousness will look down their nose at you because you do differently than them. It's dangerous. And you can have areas like this if you're not careful. We can mock the ones that we can see clearly that we've came out of, but you've got some more than likely, and you've got to beware. Be on guard. Altar calls. Your church don't even have an altar call. Nope. Neither did the book of Acts, or any of the Gospels, or any church that ever existed until the 1800s. I can show you in history that that didn't exist and you cannot show me in the Bible that it ever did. doesn't matter. You're wrong because that's how they always did it. And some of them, they got their other... Your church doesn't do children's church? That's a new one. We act like everybody always did children's church. Children's church wasn't a thing until like the 50s. Everybody knew better than that. And then open communion. You don't do... You, you guard the table. Everybody guarded the table until the 1800s. And I can show you in the Bible, if you'll listen to me, I'll sit down with you, I'll spend hours. They don't even want to hear it. You know it? You know why? Because they're offended by it. It's not what they did. 
Or, of course, the famous, you can't have any alcohol. There's none of the devil's nectar that's ever touched my lips. Well, let's think through that in the Bible. Mm, you're a liberal. <laughs> I'm not a liberal, I promise. <laughs> totally far away from that. That's not me. But then, that's the teaching of the Pharisees. You get the general thrust of that, don't you? But also the teaching of the Sadducees. The Pharisees were wrong, but the Sadducees were way out in the field. The leaven of the Sadducees was religious progressivism. To them, religion was primarily a means to earthly temporal ends. Think the social gospel. We need to be transforming society to a more fair and equitable area and importing justice and fighting against all of the injustices of society. All they mean by that is do away with capitalism and bring in Marxism. That's what they mean. That's the, I've got the decoder ring for you. You can look through it and read it. That's what they're saying. New innovations are better than the old ways, they think. They don't believe in angels, miracles, or resurrection, or an afterlife, or anything else that's spiritual. They'll quote the Bible. They don't believe any of it. You see that all the time from politicians these days, don't you? They'll cite it, but then, oh, you believe Jesus is the only way? How dare you, you bigot? Uh, that's what the Bible says. Ah, we don't believe that book. Why are you quoting it? To get votes. Because <laughs> it's pragmatically advantageous to them. They were thoroughly materialistic, rationalist, uh, rationalistic, and they too had an adverse permeating influence with many. The essence of their error is this denial of tradition, this rejection of the supernatural, the Hellenization, the building back better thing. Changing everything, overflowing everything you, that you've ever known. Hey, all this Hellenization and Roman influence, oh, it's all good. So what if it goes against our Jewish roots? All that's wrong anyway. Well, they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. They need to be going farther to the right, not throwing out what the, they threw out what the Pharisees were wrong about and what they were right about. Parallels are uncanny, aren't they? These two errors will always be with us. And they'll always be the most hateful, argumentative people that you'll ever meet are the people that are in either of these camps. The Pharisaical camp that believe their tradition and what they've always believed is absolutely right and they'll fight you to the death no matter what you show them or the progressives who they'll fight no matter what you show them or what you prove them out of the Bible they don't care, they won't even listen they'll mock you and scorn you and make fun of you you can't help them and it'll grow and it'll permeate and get bigger and they'll give themselves more over and over <coughs> modern applications are people that are grabbing hold of Black Lives Matter Oh, Matt said black lives didn't matter. No, I didn't say that. I said that that organization is a wicked, godless front as a, for Marxism. That's all it is. And it's racist to the core. But you get, a lot of, you get a lot of virtue signaling points out in society if you put that on your Facebook page. Sadducees liked points in society. They liked what the elites did. That's the modern day example. I stand with Ukraine, do you? Tell me about the conflict. Go ahead. I'll wait. Tell me about all that you know about it. Well, they're a little bitty country and it got invaded by a big bad country. Hmm. Okay. Right. How do you know? Because that's what the news said. Guys, the news is just an, out, an outreach, just an arm of the government. You get told what, you, what they want you to know. And when you're siding with things you don't know anything about, you're just siding with it because that's what everybody's doing and makes you fit in. It's the error of the Sadducees. Open borders. Why, who wants to be a xenophobe? I guarantee you don't even know what xenophobe means, but it's a bad word, ain't it? Don't want to be one of those. 
Do you know that we can love people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people and believe in national sovereignty? And that national sovereignty is biblical? And having laws for a people within borders is right and good and is a biblical idea? Or soft stances on abortion. Man, that's today, isn't it? You're, 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 you're there pro-life. Well, guys, they're not. Because any time that you actually have a law that says, hey, we're going to treat, with, uh, we're, we're gonna treat the, the abortioner, the person that's having the abortion, like a murderer, because there's equality under the law, that's the same thing, the pro-life movement will shoot it down every time because they're not trying to stop abortion. They're trying to keep a platform so they can get votes. But on the other end, you've got them, hey, guys... We've got to defend a woman's right to choose because that's the loving thing to do for these women is to allow them to murder their progeny. One's the error of the right, the Pharisees. The other's the error of the left. They're both bad, aren't they? Even if they do say abortion's wrong, they want to add to it the and campaign where basically you have to have social net. You don't punish the person who committed fornication by making them have to be responsible for what they've done. You make society responsible and we have to pay to keep all the babies up forever and ever. If you're going to make them have them, then society's responsible for raising them. What if they are responsible for their own sins? Or if they're married, it's not even sin, but for their own blessings that it's a stewardship for them and they've got to grow into it, take care of their own responsibilities. The Sadducees don't like that. They, they like the new changes. Or the LGBTQ movement. You say, even Christians on the, there's Christians on the left side of that. J.D. Greer said that Christians needed to be the greatest defenders of LGBTQ rights. I agree. They have the right to remain silent. Anything they say should, can and should be used against them in a court of law. It's a sin. And it's wrong. And it should be a crime. And it's always been criminalized until recently. How can you say that, Matt? Because I'm not a progressive and I'm not a so-called conservative. I believe what the Bible says. I'll stand on it till I die. Alone if I have to. Won't y'all? And then they soft-pedal the feminism too. You don't want to speak anything that might upset the status quo or the normal thing. That's the leaven of the Sadducees. You want to go along to get along and say what's popular and what pe most people agree with. You do this. The Pharisees do this entrenched in what they've always believed and won't move even if you show them differently. The Sadducees do this. And they fly with it. And they'll fight for whatever the new thing is. I'm in, for I'm in favor of the new thing. Have you ever heard someone say that Jesus said more harsh words to those on the religious right than he did on the left? You ever heard that? Well, that's kind of true, but it's because he had more in common with them. He had so little in common with the Sadducees that there was almost zero interaction with them. Some Pharisees converted and followed Jesus. No Sadducees did. Think about it this way. The so-called pro-life movement of today's so-called conservative opposes every equal protection bill that they see. An equal protection bill makes abortion murder. By opposing that bill, they deny the truth that undergirds the entire movement that an unborn baby is a human life just like a one-month-old or a 50-year-old person. I can't stand such wicked compromise, but I have way more in common with that guy than I do the abortion-on-demand person that wants to have abortion in the name of compassion for women. One is far from God and the other is way farther. 
It's not God's here and then the right and then the left and God's somewhere in the middle. It's you've got God, you've got the right, the so-called right, a million miles away, and you've got the so-called left five million miles away. They've deserted everything, even the basic truths that a man is a man and a woman's a woman. So that's what you've got to do today. So that's what's popular. I mean, that's been true for the last, I don't know, ten years. How can we doubt it? All of human history disagreed with that, but now we've, we've learned better when we threw away the Bible. Both will be judged, though, because God doesn't grade on, grade on a curve. Make no mistake, both types of leaven are enemies of the gospel. Neither group would obey Jeremiah 6.16. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. God, help me see beyond what I've always believed or the way the wind is blowing. Help me see beyond that to what do the Scriptures really say and let me stand in it, believe it, repent where I come short and trust in Jesus. That's the only thing that can save a soul from death. That's it. Both of the other two leavens will damn you. That's where the good way is. When you find it, walk in it. And you'll find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. The Pharisees looked to the old past, but not old enough. What they looked to were the mere traditions of men. The Sadducees welcomed new innovations and rejected much of God's Word outright. Both forms of leaven corrupt God's truth and God's people. Don't let either the legalism of the Pharisees or the liberalism of the Sadducees influence you. Jesus was saying... False doctrine is always a danger, no matter what its form. And it should be shunned and rejected by the believer, whatever and however it is encountered. So where's the true unleavened bread of righteousness? Romans 10, 1-4. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, not knowing God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not subjected themselves to the righteousness of God. What's that saying? It's saying all these people that think that they're going to earn their way into heaven, they don't realize how holy God's standard really is and that they're short of it. Therefore, they're proud of heart, either in their traditions or in their accommodation to new things. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Why? Because He fulfilled the law perfectly. At best, we'll live up to a substandard, to something we thought was right, but it was actually twisted and we had it wrong. Guys, we're sinners. It should make us humble. It should make us teachable. It should make us willing and ready to listen. And no matter, even when we think we're right, we say, but God help me. I'm aware of nothing in myself, but I'm not by this acquitted. It's the Lord that judges me. And my only hope is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on a cross. He died for where I've come short. That's what I cleave to. That's all I have. That's the only escape you have. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and grab to the unleavened righteous bread of Christ, that bread that came down out of heaven and was broken for you and for me. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for warnings that come through your word in due season. Lord, that they speak powerfully, that they are timeless truths, that these things that were relevant 2,000 years ago, that they are no less relevant today that the sins of man's hearts have not changed. Their manifestations might be somewhat different, but the root is exactly the same. 
And the remedy is also exactly the same. Lord, help us to never become uh, inundated with the leaven of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Give us that unleavened bread of sincerity and truth and make us holy, even as you are holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.